The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening. Hello again, everybody. Welcome. Welcome to hour number one of Sports Talk New York here on WGBB in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island, New York. My name is Bill Donahue. I'm here to take you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the fifth day of November 2023. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is with us as always at the helm of this ship, making sure that there's smooth waters up ahead. we got a great show lined up for you tonight, as always. Leading off, we'll welcome in the man who probably is the greatest catcher in Chicago Cubs history and also a member of the great 1969 Cubs ball club who, as we remember, fell short eventually to the New York Miracle Mets. In the second half, we will speak to former kicker for the Kansas City Chiefs and the New York Jets, Nick Lowry. He will join us. So sit back, relax, get comfortable. we got some great sports talk, some great people up ahead. As always, social media. I am out there. Call, it's called the Talk of New York Sports. That's my Facebook page. So much there for you to see and enjoy on X, which is Twitter for those who have been asleep for the past two months or so. Uh, at Sports Talk New York is where we can be found. And you can follow me on X at B Donahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry, because they're all out on the website at www.sportstalknewyork.com. And you can catch up anytime with that that you want. So don't worry, folks. Our, our first guest is considered to be one of the greatest catchers in Cubs history. Probably have to go all the way back to 1940 and a gentleman by the name of Gabby Hartnett to find another one. He was an all-star in 1969, a gold glove winner in 1967, a member of the Chicago Cubs Hall of Fame. There's a new book out there that you folks should take heed of. This uh, gentleman uh, has the book called Iron Man. Legendary Chicago Cubs catcher. It's written with John St. Augustine. The forward is by Hall of Famer Ferguson Jenkins. You could order this book at lulu.com and just type in Iron Man in the search bar and you'll get right to where you want to go. Very happy to welcome to Sports Talk New York tonight, Randy Hundley. Randy, good evening. Thank you. Good evening to you, too, Bill. It's great to, to have you with us tonight, Randy. Now, I want to ask you, when you started out, you uh, really introduced the one-handed catching style, and, and it uh, soon Bench was doing that, and, and it became the way to catch. And I, I had read where guys like Herman Franks, when you were with the Giants organization, really frowned upon the one-hand approach. Well, he did because he was uh, an old two-handed catcher. Right. And uh, a fellow by the name of Charlie Fox, who managed in the Giants organization, <coughs> pardon me, um, was another two-handed catcher. And um, he got in the cage one day. At during batting practice and was going to show me how to be a two-handed catcher. And uh, a pitch sailed on him a little bit to the outside part of the plate. 
and the ball went back against the screen, and I, I said, Charlie, that's what I don't want to do is have a ball go back to, to the screen and uh, me misusing my catcher's mitt in order to catch that pitch. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, oh, you're young. You can handle it. And I said, well, I, I, I don't want to try it, to tell you the truth. And uh, because I knew my dad would frown upon it and would come and take me out of a ball game if I if I were to do that. Mm-hmm. And um, it just was very uncomfortable to me to to uh, turn that mitt over and you know have have a ball sail on me and it get by me and so I um, I he was in uniform and was the manager and was showing me how to do it and I said Charlie I, I just I can't do it that way because I was not taught that and um and i just have to sit there and catch the ball one-handed and uh he he didn't say much to me after that but i knew i wasn't uh one of his favorites yeah yeah and uh they soon traded you to the cubs bill hands was in that trade as i recall randy and uh your major league debut it was uh september 27th 1964 at the friendly confines and you pitch ran for duke snyder in the top of the seventh inning you remember that day yeah i certainly do um the uh i was with the san francisco giants at that time and uh put me on first base to run for willie mccovey they didn't want to get him hurt uh and I didn't want to get hurt either. No. <laughs> but uh, they put me in to run for him, and uh, that was my break-in into the big leagues. Now, you you uh, went up against the Dodgers soon after uh, in one of the first games of your career. Uh, you just happened to face Koufax and Drysdale. And uh, Drysdale typically... Uh, he welcomed you to the big leagues the way he welcomed a lot of guys, <laughs> didn't he, Randy? Yes, he certainly did. <laughs> and uh, I tell you what, the the pitch that he threw at me went right under my throat and the neck, and I could feel I could feel the air Jeez. moving my my throat and. Uh, it was very uncomfortable. I went down on the ground and and uh, was lucky that I didn't get hit because uh, uh, the ball was way up and in on me and and I had nowhere to go but to the ground and and thank goodness I, he made me. He, one or two things could happen. He could make you mad and and make you want to do better, um, or he could have made me mad and uh, and I would have never taken it out on anybody. But uh, thank goodness I got up off the ground and hit a ball 
to the left field line about two feet in front of the fence, and uh, they caught the ball. And I was proud to have hit the ball at that particular time. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what I wanted to do was to laugh, but I was so mad I couldn't even see straight. Oh, I can imagine, yeah. Unbelievable. And, uh, I got up and hit, hit this fly ball, and I was very proud of it. There you go. Randy's experience with uh, the great Don Drysdale. Now, uh, Leo DeRocher comes in to take the, the reins of the Chicago Cubs. He uh, more or less made you his general on the field. How did you feel about the lip Leo DeRocher in Chicago, Randy? Well, he flat wore me out my first year in the big leagues. Uh, <clears throat> every time he wanted to, my attention, he would uh, he would raise a towel to get my attention. One day in Philadelphia, he was trying to get me. And I was I'm concentrating on the game and trying to figure out how to get a hitter out and make sure players were in the correct position. And uh, all of a sudden I see this towel fly out of the dugout, and Leo had grabbed it, jumped up inside the, the dugout, and hit his head on a rafter. And... Uh, and I thought he was going to come and get me and take me out of the ball game because I, I wasn't used to that. And uh, I, I, I looked over at him and I, I'm seeing him rub his head, and he didn't he didn't have uh, the freedom to tell me what was going on. So I, I just had to keep playing the game and. And I don't know why, why he wanted my attention, and uh, but he got it, and he had it. He had it every day after that, because I I I didn't want to go against anything he said, and he was trying to teach me how to run a game the way he wanted it run, and. Uh, and and so from that point on, I paid a lot of attention to him. I see. Yeah, Leo DeRocher, folks. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about 1969, Randy. I know it's a sore spot for you guys. I, I've had Fergie on the show, Don Kessinger, Jimmy Qualls, uh, a couple of guys from the 69 squad on the show. And uh, it's kind of a sticky situation. Well, let me set the stage. Uh, the lead is shrunk to half a game in September. Uh, the Mets beat you twice in New York. There was a play in the 3-2 to two loss in the first game. Tommy Agee on second base. Wayne Garrett lines a single to right field. Jim Hickman picks it up, throws it to home. And it appears to beat Tommy Agee to the plate, but the umpire calls Tommy Agee safe. And you, you tell us your side of the story, Randy. Well, my my side of the story is uh, not that bland, so to speak. I was uh, anxious to get the ball to put the tag on Agee. 
he was a very good base runner, fast and and uh, a little bit deceiving. But uh, he uh, headed for home, and I was anxious to get the, the throw from right field. Jim Hickman made it. Uh, got a one hop uh, ball that. Um, Wayne Garrett had hit, and he fired the ball to me, and it came in as a perfect strike, and I had blocked the plate and and was trying to keep uh, A.G. away from the plate, and I I had caught the ball one-handed, and just tagged him like anybody else would. And uh, the ball rolled up my mitt to up into the webbing, and I thought I was going to drop it, but I held on to it and um, put the tag on AG. I looked at first base at Wayne Garrett, the runner, and make sure he didn't go to second, and, and I could see the disgust on his face with with the call by the umpire, Satch Davidson. And uh, when he called him safe, I'm telling you, I just I lost I lost myself. I just <laughs> I knew I had I I couldn't bump into him or get too close to him, so I. Started jumping straight up and down to to avoid him, and uh, then I hear this tremendous roar go up, and and I see him with a safe sign, and I'm telling you I couldn't believe it, and uh, then I confronted him on the play, and he uh, finally stops me and says to me, he says, "Is that all you got to say?" I said, no, man, I ought to bite your head off. <laughs> he said, Randy, you'll have more brains in your stomach than you have in your head if you do that. And he kind of he shut me down right then and there, yeah. and I didn't say any more to it. But uh, it was a very big play for the ball club and and for me and A.G. And the, right. It was an uproar after that. Yeah, Tommy. Tommy goes down in history. He's he's not with us anymore. The great Tommy Agee. He says Randy didn't touch him. Of course, Randy says he did. And uh, we'll have to wait till we meet these guys in the afterlife, and and we'll discuss it then, folks. Uh, Satch Davidson was the umpire. He was a rookie then. And as Randy says, he he calls uh, Tommy Agee safe. And the rest, as they say, is history. Now the black cat game, Randy. Where were you? Santa was on deck. The black cat comes over and walks in front of the Cub dugout. What were you thinking? Well, I I wasn't thinking too much that particular time. I was just worrying about us getting a run and getting ahead in the game. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, yeah, <clears throat> it's very frustrating sitting there and sitting in the dugout and see a black cat come walking across from you. And, uh, it, you know, it was just, 
it was I, I don't know how to how to describe the feeling when that cat came out on the field because I didn't think uh, they could do that. And some of the uh, Mets players had run. I had heard that some of them had run a cat out on the field. I talked to a number of the players, and they said they didn't know anything about it, that the cat just came out and just happened to be there. And uh, so we just had to deal with it the best we could. And, of course, the, the cat was uh, walking in front of Leo with, with us sitting on the bench. I think I was sitting beside Leo at the time. And uh, he starts ranting and raving in his profanity and <laughs> and uh, wanted to know what in the world that demon was on. Why was that demon on the field? And uh, and so, but it just walked across and looked at us and stopped and looked at us like we were we were enemies and um, it was a very interesting situation yes <laughs> and as you can imagine that is for sure randy the great randy hundley is with us tonight on sports talk new york now tom Seaver's so-called imperfect game randy uh, that that uh, gem that he pitched against you guys in 1969. You come up in the ninth inning and you try to bunt your way on. Did did Leo give you the bunt sign, or you just figured I'm going to try to break this this up? I just figured I was going to try to break it up yeah. um, any way I possibly could. He uh, had pitched an excellent game against us. And uh, we had none of us had gotten a base hit uh, when I tried to bunt, and uh, but Jimmy Qualls came after me, and he got a line drive base hit. He took care of it. Yeah, yeah, he took care of all of it at that particular time. That was that was a real shame that night. I remember crying as a kid that night, Randy. That was <laughs> that was a real blow to me back then. Now, one more question about '69. They talk about uh, Leo running the same guys out there. I think he 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 ran the same lineup out there, except for uh, center field with Don Young and Jimmy Qualls. He basically had the same eight guys out there every day. Do you think that played uh, played a role in, in maybe you guys breaking down a little towards the end of the season? Yeah, I, I do. Um, I argued with my son for many years about, uh, you know, our attention going to, to uh, him as a runner on base. And um, I, I always felt that, that that disrupted our ball club when we lost that run and lost the game on a bad call. And, um, you know, it, it, I know that he didn't intentionally do it, uh, but, uh, it was just a, a rotten call and should have never been made against us. 
And uh, we ended up losing a ball game, and, of course, we ended up losing the pennant that year. Right. At that particular time, I think we had a two-game lead, and uh, with them scoring that run, uh, went to a one-run lead, and they beat us that game. And it was very devastating to us as a, as a player. And, uh, but it wasn't much we could do about it. it. We just had to deal with it the best we possibly could. And, uh, so, uh, it, that, that run ended up costing us a game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, it was very devastating to us, I'll tell you that. Yes, I can imagine, Randy. Randy Hundley with us again tonight on Sports Talk New York. Uh, you caught a uh, couple of no-hitters in your career, uh, Randy. You caught Bert Hooten's no-hitter against the Phillies. And the one I want to talk to you about is Milt Pappas. Milt Pappas was pitching a perfect game against the San Diego Padres on September second, 1972. Larry Stahl is the batter. And Bruce Freming uh, calls a pitch that was uh, on the corner. He calls it a ball, and that breaks up Milt Pappas' perfect game. Now, I know I talked to Milt Pappas on the air uh, a long time ago. He's, he's no longer with us either, but uh, he took that to his grave, Randy, that uh, that call that Freming made that day. Yeah, and he should have because... Uh... The 2-2 pitch uh, was a strike, and he could have called him out on that pitch, but Bruce Froming uh, decided not to and ended up walking him, and that was the only base runner they had that day, and uh, it was very frustrating to us, uh, but... What are you going to do? You right. you just you have to live with it, and that's what we did. Right. Uh, very tough. Very tough to deal with. I can imagine that was. Now you, you were in the, the era. I remember when I was a kid, Randy. Great catchers in the National League. Uh, of course, you had Bench, yourself with the Cubs, Grody with the Mets, Manny Sanguian of the Pirates. Uh, just, just a wonderful time for catchers in the National League. Yeah, I we had some top-rated catchers uh, playing at that particular time, and and that in that era of playing baseball, uh, I think we had the top-notch players in the game at each position and uh, and it lasted for quite quite some time and and uh, yes I had uh, <clears throat> bench had two at bats and that would have been his rookie year but he had a foul ball on his bare hand and uh, caused caused him to come out of the game and I saw him walking off the field and uh, the blood was dripping from his hand and I knew he was injured pretty bad and uh, he ended up not having the two at-bats that he needed to be his rookie year and he came back the next year 
and was the rookie of the year uh, and with his outstanding play and uh, he he could flat catch throw hit hit for power couldn't run that well but he he had all of the other tools that it took to be a Hall of Fame ball player. He sure did, uh, the great Johnny Bench, ladies and gentlemen. And as I said, just a great era for catching in the National League back during Randy Hundley's time. Well, Randy, you're a fan favorite still in Chicago. You draw crowds at the Cubs convention. Uh, the fantasy camp's still going on. You got your World Series ring from the 2016 Cubs, uh, who uh, ended the curse, so to speak. Uh, the new book, folks, again, it's entitled Iron Man, Legendary Chicago Cubs Catcher. It's about Randy Hundley. If you go to lulu.com, L-U-L-U dot com, and type in Iron Man in the search bar, you'll get right to it, and you can enjoy this wonderful read. Well, Randy, it's it's been a pleasure. I really thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us here in New York. John Augustine, too, I want to thank him, your co-author. The book again, folks, Iron Man, legendary Chicago Cubs catcher. Go take a look at that. As I said, you'll really enjoy it. Randy, thanks once again. Thank you very much, Bill. Take care. You too. That's Randy Hunley, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll welcome in the great NFL kicker, Nick Lowry. Stick around, folks. To Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. Welcome back to Sports Talk New York here on WGBB in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island, New York. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for listening, listening in tonight, stopping by, hanging with us for a while. I would uh, like to thank the people that tuned in from Chicago as well to hear Randy Hundley. I hope you enjoyed that that chat, and uh, I certainly did uh, talking to one of the heroes of my youth, Randy Hundley. Well, the baseball season's over, and the new champions in Major League Baseball, and it's the Texas Rangers. Great stories coming forth uh, with Bruce Boshi winning a World Series for the fourth time and one in each league. Uh, then again, there's the bullpen catcher for the Texas Rangers. He's from Long Island. His name is Patrick Cantwell. He's from West Islip, and uh, we, we hope to bring him to you in a future edition of Sports Talk New York. And he's also a Stony Brook graduate. So the, And then there, there's former Met Travis Jankowski, who was a Stony Brook Seawolf uh, earlier in his career as well. Uh, and I'd just like to bring to you 
uh, The Green Fields of the Mind, written by A. Bartlett Giamatti. I like to, to uh, quote this at the end of each baseball season, and it goes like this. It breaks your heart. It is designed to break your heart. The game begins in the spring when everything else begins again, and it blossoms in the summer, filling the afternoons and evenings, and then as soon as the chill rains come, it stops and leaves you to face the fall alone. You count on it, rely on it to buffer the passage of time, to keep the memory of sunshine and high skies alive, and then just when the days are all twilight, when you need it most, it stops. Today, November 2nd, a Thursday of rain and broken branches and leaf-clogged drains and slick streets, it stopped and summer was gone. Our next guest, ladies and gentlemen, was a kicker who played for the Patriots, the Chiefs, and, of course, the New York Jets. He was selected to the Pro Bowl three times, and when he retired, he was ranked first in field goal percentage and also had the most field goals in NFL history. Real pleasure again to welcome back to the show, Nick Lowry. Nick, good evening. Thank you, sir. Wonderful to have you with us, Nick. Uh, your, your, your clock's all set out there. You, you're good to go? We don't have to do that here. Oh, yeah, that's yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, you guys are we exempt. We don't have to do that here. You guys are exempt. That's right. It's the rest of you and you guys that are screwed up. <laughs> yeah. We've got it all figured exactly. out. Exactly. You guys are the normal ones. Okay. Now, who were your sports teams and players as a youth, Nick? Oh, absolutely. The Washington Redskins and the Washington Senators, and then the Washington Bullets, Wes Unseld and Earl the Pearl Monroe before he went to New York. Sure. Um, of G- course. Gus Johnson. Frank Howard, the great Frank Howard, who just passed away a few days ago. Right. Yeah, and you had Ted Williams as your manager for a while. It was, uh, And it was a great team. Yeah, they yeah. went from, you know, zero to, you know, a pretty darn good team, and Unfortunately, our owner decided to move us from Washington to Texas, and, uh, you know, uh, the Nationals came in, about, I don't know how many years later, but uh, the Senators, we uh, we took pride that we had about four members of the All-Ugly team. We didn't have a lot of All-Stars, but we had members of the All-Ugly team, and we were proud of them. That's good. Yeah, if you can't be good, be ugly. That's what I always say, Nick. Now, uh, your childhood was unlike most NFL players. Your mom coordinated the coordinated the Fulbright Scholars Program in London. Your dad That's correct. Your dad spent a career as a European affairs analyst for the State Department and you were born in Munich and you spent part of your youth over there and you also lived next door to a Supreme Court justice, Byron Wade. Yes. Now what was that like living next to a man well, on, let on me the, clarify on the my bench. dad was in the first group of Fulbright scholars so my mother took her job seriously and ended up marrying okay. my dad. She was in <laughs> okay. charge with I remember Daniel Patrick Moynihan, future uh, United Nations ambassador. Yes, I senator believe, from Reagan New York and, then, and US senator from New York. Right. Was a freckly faced, skinny, uh, you know, scholar. My mother was more attracted to the seasoned former reconnaissance pilot for General Patton, and uh, my father was an expert on Russia and Eastern Europe, and and uh, was in the first group of when the CIA had, uh, shall we say, a more, shall we say, uh, diplomatically uh, well-defined sense of idealism <laughs> than it may t- today, and. Uh, 
that's why in the early days my dad was uh, working for the CIA in Germany in Munich where I was born and came back to the States till I was nine. And our next-door neighbor moving in when I was six into McLean, Virginia, was a guy named Justice Byron Wizard White who happened to lead the NFL in rushing twice in three years. Right. And at, first with the, the Pittsburgh Steelers in the Rooney family, and then two years later finished number one at Yale Law School the same year the poor guy led the NFL in rushing for, for the Detroit Lions. Mm-hmm. Now, you won... The Wizard White, Wizard White Award. That's a good one. The Wizard White Award uh, in 1993, who is uh, given to to the guy who does the most community service or or the the, the most charity work in the NFL. Well, I'd like to think it was it was beyond that. It's you know about that person that does his community uh, you know service certainly and represents. Uh, I, I hope a, a certain. Uh, facility and leadership itself and I, I talk about that when you're surrounded by those people what a difference it makes so when you do work like I do with the homeless and with Native Americans and inner city kids to get them exposed to people that have achieved things that think bigger to help them realize it's possible for them that's huge and here's a great thing the next year uh, because Justice White had just retired he refused because back then again the Supreme Court had that funny thing called ethics at a different level so he refused to uh, I'm being a little facetious here but let's just say there have been some conflicts of interest lately with some of the things uh, attributed to some Supreme Court justices but he refused to uh, do anything with the Players Association because he knew he might have to rule on the antitrust issues to do with the NFL. So when he finally retired, I was asked by Dick Bertelson, the vice president of uh, legal affairs for the NFL Players Association, uh, if I would ask him to present the Justice Byron Award name for him, Justice Byron White Award. And he uh, told me he just left the White House where he had um, sworn in with Bill Clinton, the new uh, Attorney General, Janet Reno. And he told me uh, amusingly that he said on one condition he would do that for Bill Clinton, which was that he could wear his cowboy boots so that Janet Reno, who is not a small woman, would not, uh, be taller than him, <laughs> and uh, and so he agreed to present. So I got to introduce as the uh, winner of the award that previous year. I got to get up and introduce my next door neighbor and one of the greatest people I've ever known in my life. Outstanding! What a great story that is, Nick. Now, you you went to Dartmouth again. Not many NFL players go to Dartmouth. Uh, you were a theater major your first two years. Very good, right? I was. Uh, yeah. We had a wonderful man, Errol, Errol Hill, who was the head of that department, and um, I would had a great uh, teacher at St. Albans School in Washington, D.C., Ted Walsh, who inspired me to do that. And then my mother, very British uh, in her way, thought, you know, I could still act, but maybe I should do something more practical, like uh, major in government, which is what most colleges call political science. So I switched to that, and a year and a half later, I was a legislative aide for Senator John uh, Chafee as an intern, and I wrote the top intern report of that year on J- Jimmy Carter's energy program, which we can have some interesting discussions about uh, alternative energy, by the way. And uh, then the next year, after I graduated, I worked for him again on the Title V commissions, which were supposed to be regional commissions to help 
um, coordinate regional economic uh, needs. Meanwhile, I'm trying out with eight teams 11 times, played two games with the Patriots, and we're just not quite ready for prime time. I made all seven extra points, missed my one 45-yard field goal by about two miles against the, the uh, San Diego Chargers, and they let me go. And, you know, all that kept going through my head was there's no way I can be good enough unless I keep going, unless I keep trying. And the next year the Redskins um, gave me two shots, um, and I made a couple of field goals, missed two extra points, just barely over the right upright because I was learning to kick without a tee. And I, I mention that because I had never missed an extra point in – college 51 for 51 and i went on to have the highest uh, extra point percentage from 20 yards in the history of the nfl i made 562 or 568 and um that was before it was moved back of course a few years ago to 33 yards which is considerably harder right but um anyway to me that message when you hear you know people talking about how do they get through all the rejections. It's the fact that I hung in there for two years, and the Nick Lowry that got cut by the Patriots and got rejected by the Jets twice and got rejected by the Colts twice and got rejected by all those teams, I was mentally tougher, physically tougher, and then I was able to beat out the greatest kicker at that point in the history of the game, Jan Stenner, head-to-head with Clark Hunt, 16-year-old ball boy, charting us every day, distance, get-off time, etc. And now the current owner of the Chiefs, one of the best owners, if not the best owner in the National Football League of the world, reigning world champion, thank you, mm-hmm. Kansas City Chiefs, Clark Hunt told his father, Lamar Hunt, whose name is on the trophy right. for the AF- AFC, uh, championship, then I was going to beat out Jan Stenerud, and indeed I, I beat him out and broke every single one of his records, which could never have happened except for getting cut and rejected 11 times. Right. Well, we will talk in a little bit, uh, Nick, about Canton and uh, prospects for that, but on to more important things. I'd like to ask you about coming out and talking about Tay-Tay, and Travis Kelsey at the Chiefs game, and you or and Kel, Travis at the World Series was a distraction to the Kansas City Chiefs. Have you had any backlash from that, Nick? You know what? Well, first of all, um, if anybody took the time to read what I wrote, right. I said that I adore the Chiefs. I adore. Travis Kelsey. I adore Patrick Mahomes, who gave me a humanitarian award with Lee Steinberg five years ago. He and Patrick are the best thing that ever happened to the Chiefs. He's a superlative, that's the word I use, superlative human being. His teammates look up to him. And, um, you know, he is on to the next game, but it's just simply a distraction and, and not the best look. And Andy Reid would say it as well. It just seemed like we were completely off. It was the anomaly, which we proved today was an anomaly. We were much more on, although we didn't have as good a second half. But our defense may be the best defense, certainly one of the best defenses in the NFL. We just couldn't stop Denver's running game. We didn't have that spark. And, of course, Patrick had the flu. But just, you know, right. it's just my two cents on my tiny little Facebook page. But apparently somebody thought it had merit. But I'm not going to let anybody suggest that I don't absolutely adore the Kansas City Chiefs, adore Andy Reid, adore this team. And we're going to come back because we always find a way to win. And we're going to win our third Super Bowl this year. Outstanding. Way to go on that, Nick. Yes. Way, way to uh, speak your mind on that uh 
magnanimous situation that we had there. We'll go on now. As we said, we'll talk about the Hall of Fame. There are two, two guys, Morton Anderson, Jan Stenerud, who you mentioned, both Hall of Famers. They're really the only two pure kickers that are in Canton. Vinatieri will probably be the next one to make it. But yes, they, they've forgotten that there's another retired place kicker who is very qualified, but who never gained, <laughs> who never gained their attention. And that's the man I'm speaking man. with. You know, it's funny. It's funny. If I had been part of the Buffalo Bills, if I had been part of one of the teams that we you know, like the Raiders in the 80s, you know, that had some, some merit, but we just weren't a very good team in the 80s. Now in the 90s, when Marty came, I was, I had 24 field goals in a row in 1990. And I, by the way, I was Sports Illustrated's kicker of the decade in 1980. I appreciate you breaking that up. I qualified as the most accurate kicker in NFL history, which mm-hmm. brought the old record from 72 up to 80%. Um, I had 21 field goals in a row in 91. The next year, no one had ever had two streaks of over 21 in a row. I was 22 for 24 the next year. And I was the Sports Illustrated's second rated kicker of the decade, even though I only played through 96. And um, Jan deserves to be in. Morton deserves to be in. They had he had a lot of field goals. Mm-hmm. I unfortunately had a torn meniscus my last year with the Jets, which was misdiagnosed, and I never played again. But I had 18 years. I had a higher percentage. Uh, Jan had a 67 percent lifetime percentage, 58 percent at Arrowhead Stadium. He was the first great kicker. He was amazing, and he right. was part of a Super Bowl team, a dominant team. I was 80% and I was 87% at the beginning of the 90s, uh, which even today, with the balls broken in as they are now, which they were not before, as Jan, Jan implored me to mention on my interviews, <laughs> um, yeah. the balls are broken in now and the, and the fields are in much better condition and the kickers are better, but they ain't that much better. So I appreciate it. I do think I belong. Um, Morton played 20 years. Indoors, I never played indoors. I played in two of the windiest stadiums. No, you're right. So I'd like yep. to think that I deserve to be in there. And you know, if I'd been part of a great team, if the if the Chiefs had had a chance, uh, you know, and if I'd stayed, that was the first year of free agency when I left in '94. Um, you know, it gone on. Who knows what might have happened? And I'm grateful for my career. I was man of the year four times, five times actually when you add a year with the Jets. And, uh, you know, some of the greatest things, if not the greatest things that ever happened in my life. So I can't afford to not be grateful for all the good things, And uh, but I appreciate you bringing that up. No worries. I do believe that you, that, uh, you will garner the attention to get you into Canton sooner or later, Nick. That is for sure. And you mentioned the elements. Uh, Morton kicking indoors. You were outdoors at Arrowhead, and of course the Meadowlands, where we know gets pretty crappy there in November. You know, so uh, that that's a uh, an aspect right there that people fail to look up. I want to ask you about the Jets. How did you feel coming to the Jets? Well, I was excited because Pete Carroll is such a, a phenomenal, ebullient, bubbly, genuine guy that loves the game, and Pete has two rules. Two rules. Have fun, work your ass off. Maybe in the other way around. Work your butt off and have fun. Right. And he is true to both of those things. That keeps the team loose. When you're playing as we did and practicing as we did back then in Hempstead, where you feel like there's a black cloud following you, you know, it, <laughs> it, you've got to have that kind of great energy. And I was on David Letterman 
twice, and I was uh, played in the U.S. Open Celebrity every year, which was great. By the way, ironically, Bill Cosby, before everything blew up, was the uh, official referee for the Arthur Ashe Kids Day, which began the day before on CBS Sports. So there was a lot of fun there, and Pete kept it fun. And we we did collapse the last four or five games of the season, starting with that fake spike game against the – Miami Dolphins, ironically, who the Chiefs played today, and Dan Marino. But um, you always give a new coach at least one year to bring in his people. And then the sort of um, unfortunate um, timing was that Dick Steinberg, one of the great uh general managers in the National Football League, died of cancer. So the two people that brought me to the Jets – uh, we're gone. And, um, and then our owner, Mr. Hess, God bless him, didn't replace, um, Pete Carroll with Bill Belichick. He replaced, uh, Pete Carroll with Richie Kotite. And, uh, we didn't really have, we should have had Pat Kerwin just elevated because he's an enormously talented, bright man. He, he remained assistant, uh, general manager. But we had some, uh, a lack of clarity with, with that position and, you know, we just had two terrible years. It was a, it was a rough time and, you know, I just choose to chalk it up that God's in charge of things. We do the best we can. And in the end, uh, the script's not always written by us. No, yeah, tough days, tough days in Hempstead. We're only down the road from Hofstra here, Nick, so, uh, uh, those were the days when the Jets, the Jets were at Hofstra training with from Joe Namath all the way down to Nick Lowry has played on that hallowed turf over there in Hempstead. And by the way, Joe has become a great friend, and anybody that, that thinks Joe is just a legend, Joe Namath is the nicest, most considerate, most respectful, most genuine and kind human being I may have ever met in my life. And I tell people now that when they beat the Buffalo, excuse me, the Baltimore Colts in that legendary, maybe the most important single game in NFL history, it wasn't because they had more talent. Baltimore probably had more talent on paper. But every player on that Jets team, of course, we view Bank was great and they had talent, but Every player knew that Joe Namath had their back. They loved Joe to death, and he loved them to death. And when you have that level of loyalty, the way the Chiefs have to Patrick Mahomes, by the way, you will go to the mat. And football is an emotional game, even for kickers. When you've got your emotions and your juices flowing because you give a darn about each other, it's amazing how that translates in the game itself. And that's why Joe Namath and the New York Jets won the most important game in the history of the National Football League. That's great that you brought that up, Nick, though, about Joe Willie, because I think there are a lot of misconceptions about the guy. Um, I, I've met him a few times, and he's been nothing but, but uh, a great guy. So uh, it's nice that you brought that out. I appreciate that. And- Absolutely. Uh, I want to ask you about the single bar on the helmet. Nobody wears the single bar on the helmet anymore. I remember when quarterbacks used to wear the single bar on the helmet. And that, that, Joe Theismann. Yeah. I mean, uh, John Hadel, Joe Theismann. Uh, why did you go with the single bar? Well, I was given it when I started, and I didn't need it. You know, I, I played 18 seasons and, uh, you know, played 300-whatever games. I, I, you know, I didn't even have a tooth protector. I just chew, chew my, I would chew my red gun, my chewing gum, and uh, big red, and and that was it. And I never had luck. I mean, maybe I was lucky too on kickoffs, 
but I, I never never needed it. And I wanted vision. I wanted to be able to see that ball clearly. When you were moving towards the ball, the ball is snapped eight, eight yards, caught and snapped in about .75 seconds, caught and put down in about four-tenths of a second. And you have literally one-tenth of a second while the ball is spinning and you're moving to see it, to focus on it, to plant your left foot if you're a right-footed kicker, and to attack the ball. And so the vision part is pretty darn important. Now, on kickoff, I'd move my kind of like a flap on an airplane wing. I would move my uh, my little bar up a little bit just in case. But, you know, I never needed it, and I'm, I never felt embarrassed by it. It's, it's uh-huh. uh, And it didn't seem to hurt. Great. Great answer. Now, we're speaking with Nick Lowry tonight on Sports Talk New York. How about some of the changes in the game of football since you retired, Nick? Well, I think, first of all, football in the NFL, Roger Goodell, uh, you know, he's a genius. The The NFL is an extraordinarily well-run organization. It's definitely political. It definitely uh, takes every decision very seriously. But um, I was player rep. I was actually on Nightline with Ted Koppel in 1988, the first day of the of the lockout or strike or whatever you want to call it. And I was player rep for 11 years with the Kansas City Chiefs and then uh, with the Jets for a few years. Uh, Roger Goodell has helped manage this era of shared revenue incredibly well. And, of course, you had the blossoming where while every other thing in radio and in television has exploded in all the options it has exposed the national football league which already was three to four times more popular than baseball and basketball and five times more popular than the nhl now it's four times more popular than baseball and four times more popular than the nba and so there is nothing nothing in terms of drawing an audience that is more consistent and more valuable than the NFL scorecard. And, of course, bringing back, I will comment, bringing back Taylor Swift probably doesn't hurt uh, the ratings a little bit as well. But the truth is the NFL was great before any of that. It's so well managed. The game itself, of course, with a six-second game, you know, you can have timeouts. It's perfect for, you know, advertising. But the other thing is it's such a perfect blend of the sort of military side of great tactics and strategies with amazing power and speed and grace and athleticism and violence. And uh, they've taken away some of that. A lot of the guys complain, and frankly, if Joe Montana – was a quarterback today. I think he would have had six Super Bowls and, and uh, with zero losses, and people would maybe have a stronger argument that he was better than Tom Brady, although Tom Brady's ten Super Bowls is just extraordinary, not taking anything away from him. Tom is, you know, one of the greatest competitors in the history of any sport, right up there with Michael Jordan, Magic Johnson, but... Um, Roger Goodell has done a phenomenal job with the the NFL. The rules changes with regard to concussions, very necessary. I wish uh, they did more. I've I've provoked um, and helped promote the uh, mobile virtual player, which was developed at Dartmouth with my dear, dear friend, my holder at Dartmouth, Buddy Tevens, who just passed away, was paralyzed and then died from injuries from a Viking accident and Mm -hmm. won the Ivy League title about six, seven times and brought incredible uh, dignity to the Dartmouth football program. But one of the great legacies of Buddy Tevens is that he said, let's develop 
a mobile robotic dummy that can run a 4640 or 4740 that can cut on a dime that weighs 200 pounds but no longer in the Ivy League now for about seven years the Ivy League no longer has teammates tackling teammates in practice so that's cut 80 percent of injuries and 60 percent of concussions and yet Dartmouth if you watch it because they can practice tackling not three or four times you know in there with tackling dummies that are static but let's say 20 times and 30 times when you start getting that many more repetitions guess what you get better and the Dartmouth defense if you watch the highlights of Dartmouth football tackling it's better than, I mean, it's literally, they're not as big, they're not as fast, except for people like Reggie Williams, who had a great career with Cincinnati. But they tackle as well or better than a lot of NFL players. So there's a great thing, and I, and I think 16 or 20 NFL teams have the MVP, the, this incredible movement. You get two or three of those things, so it's a lot like watching mobile bodies coming across and who do you block and who do you tackle. Mm-hmm. And yet that way... Teams don't have to tackle each other and create all of those knee injuries and shoulder injuries and hip injuries and back injuries and concussions that is, you know, the one thing holding the game back. You've served three U.S. presidents, Nick, as an advisor on youth and drug policy in the White House. Reagan, Bush, and Clinton. Who's the biggest sports fan? Oh, wow. Well, uh, Reagan certainly loved it. I didn't get to know him as well, um, and you know all of them did. You know, sports is so important. I actually played in high school at St. Albans with Neil Bush, and oh, uh, nice. Marvin okay. Bush was kicked out for smoking pot. But Marvin's a great tennis player. They were all great tennis players. I was intramural champion. I played in the U.S. Open, won the U.S. Open, celebrity there uh, all three years when I played for the Jets. And and the Bush family, they love tennis. And then Clinton, here's a great story. In May 25th, 1993, Peter King from Sports Illustrated uh, did a story about it, if you want to look it up. And uh, we had a bunch of athletes who were doing great things in the community. Thomas Hearns, Dan Marino, Joe Theismann, also even Sinbad the Comedian was there, all sorts of interesting people. Um, and I'm sitting there, in the photo you'll see, I'm leaning against the presidential desk, right next to the president who has his hands over. I'm looking at it right now, and he was pink, and he'd lost about 25 pounds. This is May 25th, so it's getting warmer in Washington. I said, Mr. President, you look great. What are you doing? He goes, Nick, you know, that Bill Clinton accent. <laughs> Nick, you know, uh, I, I've been running sprints on the South Lawn, and I love it. It's just, I just feel, it gets me going in the, in, every morning. I said, Mr. President, you are the first and probably the last president to be running sprints on the South Lawn. So each each one in their own own ways. I think that at that point, Reagan, who was older, you know, would do some dumbbells and do some things. But he was, you know, he's in pretty good shape for his age. But um, Clinton certainly liked to work out. I'm not sure if he was, you know, a big football player or anything like that. Um, and, And the Bushes, they had a tradition, too. If you look at the Kennedys, always playing sports. Those are the things that build sports teaches the ability not just to win, but to come back from adversity, to work through pain and disappointment, and to be a teammate, to be a team, to play as a team. Wonderful. Nick Lowry. Uh, please look up Lowry Speaks for some great stuff from Nick Lowry up there. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you with us, Nick. I thank you thank for you, taking brother. Taking the time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us back here on Long Island down the road from Hostra, and we wish you all the very best.
If I can mention one last thing. Yes. Um, my, my foundation's main program is called Champions for the Homeless, and you can find it at nicklowry.org. And I work with a company that's based in New York called Massive Blue, and we have a, a software that is designed, and we're catching uh, human traffickers and fentanyl traffickers uh, on the southern border, and we're just getting going. But check it out. It's an AI company that's designed to catch the bad guys, and I'm proud to be part of that. Nice. Way to go, Nick. Well, thanks again, and we'll be in touch with you. Thank you, sir. That's Nick Lowry, ladies and gentlemen. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I would like to thank my guests, Randy Hudling and, of course, Nick Lowry, my engineer, Brian Graves, and you. You guys, thank you for joining us. I'll see you next Sunday evening, November 19th. Mark your calendars. Till then, be safe. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.